Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 65 for the third quarter of February 2013. The topic I'm going to talk today is about the film Celestial by Jose Escamilla. The basic claim of Escamilla in this particular film is that NASA and everyone else is lying to you about the true color of the moon, and that there are anomalies that are evidence of advanced technology being used on the moon. It's somewhat related to his previous two films, where he argued the same thing, but also that spots of bright color that show up in hidden photos are actually UFOs. He laid off a little bit on the UFOs in this particular film. This is going to be a short episode, but to lengthen it a little bit, I'm going to give you some background into the man himself. As with other episodes about a specific person's specific claim or small set of claims, this is not done as an ad hominem attack, but rather I do it because I think it's interesting and informative about the broader mindset of the person making these claims. Jose's claim to fame was not really UFOs nor anything to do with the moon, but rather it was rods. For those of you who are fortunate enough not to know, rods are rod-like anomalies, funny enough, that Jose found in film footage. He's an ardent ufologist, and so he spent a long time with his camera pointed up, trying to catch UFOs on film or tape or CCD. And he captured what looks sorta like rods, as in elongated, somewhat rectilinear shapes. He called them rods and proceeded to Coast to Coast AM and other venues to talk about these literal UFOs, literal because they were unidentified flying objects. Though I opted not to listen to the roughly 10 hours of Coast audio that I have about him for this episode, if memory serves correctly, Jose did not attribute these to actual piloted or remotely operated craft, though others have, but rather to alien animals effectively swimming through the atmosphere of Earth or an alien craft, but usually animals. As it turns out, these are animals, but rather mundane terrestrial insects that, when you have a regular film speed of either 25 or 30 frames per second, the insect moves over the course of a single frame, and it looks exactly like Jose's rods. This was clearly debunked on the History Channel's Monster Quest show, and it's also pretty much exactly the same thing behind the Denver UFO case from mid-November 2012. Jose went on to produce a UFO documentary entitled UFO, The Greatest Story Ever Denied, which was then followed up by his Moon Rising documentary. The latter is where he latched onto the claims of the moon being this multicolored but really big multicolored cover-up, among other things, that's the focus of his third film, Celestial. I debated doing a full, in-depth, blow-by-blow analysis for this hour-long movie, or just going into the main claim itself. In the end, I decided to go with the main claim itself and spare you the details. Details are for the movie review of John Carter to come out in a few months, which Richard C. Hoagland thinks is a documentary of ancient Martian technology. He dragged his homeopathist wife to see it several times, but I digress. I downloaded this nearly hour-long movie from where he had it posted on YouTube, and I'll link to that in the show notes. If you ignore the content entirely, it's an interesting film. The music is very grandiose, giving the impression that this is a major production. It has interviews and voiceovers, and 
Other than going a little bit too fast over parts of the moon and making it dizzy, it's relatively well put together. If you ignore the content. I did watch the entire movie. I had to do it in short spurts because, and I realize this is less objective than I usually try to be, I felt dumber every single minute that I watched the movie. About 95% of the movie was admitted pareidolia and a gross misunderstanding of image processing. To get the pareidolia out of the way first, he states around 18 minutes in that a certain feature, quote, looks like an eel with its jaws open to me, but to others it will look different, but it is a strange structure of some kind, end quote. Jose, that's pareidolia, almost by definition, and there are examples throughout the movie, but that's just one of them. The reason that I'm really talking about this movie at all is because it gets more into some aspects of image processing that we've covered before on this podcast, but some that we haven't covered at all. There are really three broad categories that I want to talk about in this episode. The first is one that I've talked about somewhat before, and that's the concept of recovering data that has been removed. Roughly 11 and a half minutes into the movie, Jose Escamilla makes a big deal about a particular Apollo 17 photograph taken from lunar orbit. He claims that the film was published as overexposed, but he claims that he can restore all of the lost, overexposed information by first increasing the contrast a lot to make the darks darker and the lights lighter, and then restore the original colors, what he thinks are original colors, by playing with the color balance. He then claims that now he can do analysis, quote, after getting the photo back as close to its original version, end quote, as possible. The problem with this is that he's wrong. You can't. If he's correct in that the original image, or the print he's working from, was overexposed, then that means that there are regions of it that are saturated, bright white, and you lose all detail within those regions. It's gone. You can't get it back from that photo. And, as I covered in the image processing episodes about 20 episodes ago, increasing the contrast further removes information, changing what's there, as does him playing with the color. Far from restoring anything, he's further manipulating it. The second image processing topic is actually his last in the film, and that's what he claims is a structure many, many miles tall on the moon. As evidence, he shows a fuzzy object that, if you measure how many pixels across it appears to be, it's many times larger than the tallest human-built structures or statues on Earth. The problem with this claim is that he misses that he's looking at a map of the surface of the moon taken from an orbiting spacecraft pretty much looking straight down, with the sun pretty much directly overhead. He's not seeing any vertical structure. He's only seeing horizontal structure. So even if what he's looking at were a real structure and a real artificial structure, it's not tall, it's long. The third topic is color composites. I talked about these briefly back in episode 48. In it, I said that spacecraft cameras have different color filters on the cameras, and so they take images in various different colors. When you take an image through a color filter, what's recorded is black and white. It's just a black and white representation of that particular color, and to see it as color, you would have to go into software and colorize it. Later, in the computer, you can colorize one filter to correspond to, say, red. You can colorize another image of the same object taken with a different filter to be 
say, green. And you can colorize another image taken with a different filter of the same object to be blue. That gives you a basic three-color composite that you can then analyze. But that does not mean that if you were to look at the object with your own eye, it would look anything like that three-color composite. In fact, it's very rare that this would actually be the case because we are most often imaging things using filters that don't correspond to the three types of color receptors in the human eye. We image them in wavelengths corresponding to specific atoms or molecules or other features that we want to study. For example, I was just brought on for a brief six-month job to help plan the pre-Pluto encounter of the New Horizons spacecraft that's going to be from January 2015 through 20 days before the closest approach on January 14th, 2015. So, I've been doing a lot of background reading into the different instruments on the spacecraft. One of the cameras is called RALPH, and it images things in visible and the infrared part of the spectrum. RALPH has two imagers, one of them taking pictures similar to what we've talked about before in this podcast. That one has six different imaging detectors. Two are redundant and are called panchromatic because they take a picture pretty much irrespective of what color light hits them. In other words, pan, it spans a lot of chromatic color. Anything from violet to the mid-infrared, in this case, it will see and record. Three of the remaining detectors are what we call broadband filters or broadband detectors, one being blue, which goes, or at least being called blue, which goes from 400 through 550 nanometers, which your eye would see as very, very faint violet through a bright green. Another is quote-unquote red, with a wavelength span that goes through 540 nanometers to 700 nanometers. That's what your eye would see as bright green through a faint, almost infrared red. The other is a near-infrared filter, which is 780 to 975 nanometers, which is invisible to your eye. The sixth final detector is a very narrow band detector that's centered around an emission by the molecule methane, roughly 860 to 910 nanometers, only 50 nanometers in range as opposed to 200 or so for the other filters. They have this specific methane imager because there are lots of indications that methane plays an important role on Pluto's surface and its atmosphere. In other words, the camera will take pictures basically showing where methane is abundant. It'll be bright where methane is reflecting or emitting stuff, and it'll be dark where it's not. It's also in a wavelength range that we can't see as humans, so it's in the near-infrared. And yet, I can guarantee you that when images are released, they will be three or four color composites in the human visible range. They're not going to release images in the infrared because we won't be able to see anything. In other words, they will be false color. They will be meant to bring out details that we can more easily interpret with our human eyes. For example, they may make the methane bright green on the screen, the blue filter blue and the red filter red. So, anything that appears bright green in the composite image means that there's a lot of methane in that spot. The reason that I'm going into this bloody detail again is that roughly 80% of Jose's movie is looking at false color images of the moon created by the Clementine spacecraft in the mid-1990s. I've included some links to the Clementine information and maps in the show notes. Clementine could image the moon in 10 different colors, 
ranging from the ultraviolet to the visible and then many in the infrared. In fact, it only had one UV band, one visible band, and the rest were infrared. So right off the bat, everything that Jose says about the color of the moon from the Clementine photography is wrong. I know that's a very broad statement, but it's true. It is not the true color of the moon. In fact, if you go to download the Clementine color mosaics, most of the websites that have them say that the three color composite mosaics of the lunar surface are set so that the color blue on the screen is the UV filter. The color green on the screen is set to the near-infrared 900 nanometer filter, and the color red on the screen is set to the 1000 nanometer near-infrared filter. Yes, it is an RGB composite, red, green, blue, but there is nothing quote-unquote natural about it in the sense that this is what your eye would or could see. And the vast majority of the film is then taking those maps and reading into the colors and misinterpreting various things. He sees a feature that appears dark blue on the maps and says that it's a tunnel entrance. No, it's a feature that's just really bright in UV and dark in IR. He goes across the entire surface, pointing out what are clearly fresh craters and says that these are domes and mounds. And he just goes on and on and on and on like that. That's the basics of the film Celestial. This all gets back to the idea that NASA and everyone else is apparently wrapped up in this conspiracy to hide the capital T truth from you. I can only imagine what else they know and what they have done to keep us dumbed down. I don't know if Jose really believes what he actually says. He definitely seems sincere in his interviews and movies. What this does is get to the broader question of laypersons doing science. It's a topic that I've addressed on my blog before in the context of Alex Tsikiris playing scientist, and one that I may port over to a podcast episode at some point. It's also a question that I face in half of my job with the Citizen Science Project Moon Mappers, and now with Mercury Mappers as well. The questions are, how do people who aren't trained in this kind of work interpret things? Is it the same way that scientists do? And if not, why not? And if we want people to be able to do the data gathering process for us to help us to do real science, what minimum amount of training do we have to force people to go through before we give them data to analyze? Obviously, in this case, we would have had to train people on what colors actually mean. It's an interesting set of questions, and I'd be interested to know what you think about them if you choose to write in about this. But to get back to the subject of this episode and to wrap things up, in the case of the movie Celestial, José Escamilla presents a very clear instance of someone who has no idea what he's really looking at, no idea of how the data are gathered and displayed, and no idea of what's really going on, the very thing of which he accuses the rest of us. There's no new news related to a previous episode for this one, but I would like to remind everyone listening that if they see something in the news that has something to do with a subject of a previous episode, please send it in. Like, for example, if I had ever talked about America's prophet, Sean David Morton, before, then this would have been a good episode to mention that he's finally had an $11.5 million judgment against him by the Securities and Exchange Commission held up in court and court-ordered to, again pay up. 
but I've not talked about Sean David Morton before, so I can't use that for the new muse. This episode's question comes from Darren S. from Las Vegas, New Mexico, USA, who asks, How do you engage in conversation with those who believe in a woo subject but are generally rational? It's an interesting question, and I think that many people have many different approaches. For me, there are two that sort of boil down to one. The first is that I would ask what their best evidence is for insert woo topic. If that best evidence is actually in any way investigatable, and I have the time and interest, then I would do so. Along with that, the second approach, and the one that I've been taking more frequently lately, is to ask a simple question. What would it take to falsify your belief? If they're a rational person, and they just have this particular sacred cow, then they should be able to come up with a rational answer that is doable. You can then try to do that, and you should be done. For example, with the Lunar Ziggurat Saga last summer with Mike Barra, Mike continued to move the goalpost and gallop from one piece of evidence to another and another and another. I eventually, in my brief three-minute stint on Coast to Coast as a caller, asked him what it would take to falsify his belief. He responded that it would take original or near-original prints or film negatives, not realizing that the film used in Apollo days was positive, of the photographs from Apollo that had a clear chain of custody and to have his feature not be there. Something like that is nearly impossible at this point in time, but it was at least a seemingly rational answer. Alternatively, if the person says that there is nothing that would disprove their belief that it's a fact, then that's the end of the conversation. It's a belief, and no amount of argument will make them change their mind, and so there's really no point unless you enjoy hitting your head with an anvil repeatedly. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, though the easiest is just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. For feedback related to last episode's topic on quantum nonsense, I mentioned in a quick lib that Dean Radin was the guy doing telephone telepathy experiments. That was incorrect. Dean Radin is the guy behind the Global Consciousness Project. It's Rupert Sheldrake who's behind the telephone telepathy stuff, and although he doesn't directly attribute it to quantum mechanics, he thinks that some sort of so-called morphogenic field, which makes about as much sense as Richard Hoagland's hyperdimensional physics, other people do attribute the telephone telepathy stuff to quantum mechanics. And I just have to say, if I were to ever quit science and open an auto body shop, although first I'd probably have to learn something about cars, I would call it the quantum mechanics and hire a bunch of vertically challenged people. With that said, and that really bad joke out of the way, it's time for The Puzzler, where each episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was hardly based on the main segment, but it was this. If I'm writing a recipe that calls for one part butter, four plus epsilon parts peanut butter, and eight minus epsilon parts powdered sugar, along with four parts semi-sweet chocolate, what am I making? Congratulations goes to Chu from the SGU message boards for being the first of many to respond through email and the podcast show notes and other places with a response. Chu somehow managed to respond within an hour after the episode was actually posted. The recipe is for a confection called Buckeyes. 
For those of you who are not from the Midwest of the United States, and by Midwest, that's Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, that's because it was part of the Midwest Territory, Buckeyes are so named because they look like the nut from the Buckeye tree, which is the state tree of Ohio. As I was raised in Ohio, I know a little bit about this. Buckeyes are basically chocolate-covered peanut butter balls, basically a round Reese's peanut butter cup. When I would make these in grad school for parties, they were nicknamed diabetes balls, which brings me to the honorable mention to Dr. Steve F. from the UK, who said that the recipe was for an acute myocardial infarction, also known as a heart attack. This episode, with the main segment on anomalous lunar color, the puzzler comes from listener Warwick, and it deals with, yep, you guessed it, the color of the sun. The question is, why does the sun appear to be yellow? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode. That episode will be about the Schumann resonance, so if you have ideas for a puzzler, please send it in. By way of announcement, it looks like the one that I was going to announce last week but held off needs to be held off for yet another episode. But I do have an announcement for this episode. And that's at the episode for March 16th, 2013, should be another interview with the pseudonymous expat, who was my first interview ever back in episode 10 for November 1st, 2011. Expat will be returning to talk about the many conspiracy theories of Richard C. Hoagland related to the politics and some technology at NASA. The reason that I'm announcing this so early is that this topic garnered a lot of interest on the Facebook page for the podcast, And so I wanted to let you know early so that if there's a specific question or topic that you'd like me to ask expat about, you can send it in. You can do that via any of the half dozen or so ways there are to get in touch with me, though the probably easiest one is to just send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Don't forget also, of course, that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. Astro Stu, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. And with that all said and done, we get to listen to the exit music. That wraps up this topic for the 65th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned a bit or a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1. The feedback form on the website. 2. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. 3. Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. 4. Leave a comment on the blog post for this episode. Five, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or six, send me a tweet, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Please also write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then also tell friends and family, as well as two random people that you'll never meet in real life. But don't tell the people on the podcast Facebook page. They already know.